Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine for a minute, say you had one opportunity, one time that you got to walk on the shores of a beach with God. He decided to show up with you, walking along with you. What questions would you want to ask? What conversations would you want to have? I mean, would you just drop the bomb like, hey, God, I'm just really curious, like what, what's up with evil? Why did it have to exist? Would you, would you be asking questions of history? You know, like, can, can you tell me what these, these guys were really like? Or would you like ask the question like, who really shot JFK? I just really want to know, you know. Uh, there's so many pieces that, and questions that may be rolling through our heads as we would have that chance. But I doubt you, any, many of us would actually sit down and say, okay, God, I'm here with you. This is, this is the day um, I, get to, I get a chance to walk with you. How am I going to die? Would you ask that question? How am I going to die? I want to know how I'm going to die. I, I don't think many of us would, would relish in the concept or the knowledge of how you and I would end our lives. Sure, you're like, betting God, please let it be just like old age. I fall asleep and I wake up in heaven. And few of us would want to know because running the risk of finding out how horrible or some awful thing that would occur to you or some kind of long, prolonged disease or something you knew, oh man, this is the way I was going to die. But what's interesting is Peter did get this chance. He did walk along the beach with God namely Jesus Christ, as he's being brought back into the community of, with Jesus. Jesus asks him three times, hey, do you really love me? Are you really willing to follow me? Are you really after me? And, and Peter is being brought back in after denying Jesus three times. And in this conversation, he then turns to Peter and he tells him, without Peter asking for it, but he just says a warning. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to die by being crucified. Now, will you really follow me? If you, you're going to make a commitment to me that's going to take you all the way to the death of being tortured on a cross. In fact, we will know that Peter will be crucified upside down, according to church history. And he would go through probably a more excruciating form of that death on the cross because he was so faithful and willing to follow after Jesus after this moment. Say you found out how you were going to die. You don't know how many days it's going to be until you die. You don't know how long it's going to be. But how would you respond? Would you run away, lock yourself in a room, try to keep yourself away from every Roman person possible? Would you move as far away in the, from the empire as you could to keep that destiny from occurring to you? Or would you embrace it and say, you know, I'm, I know how I'm going to die. And I know that this is in God's hands. I'm after it. I'm going to do everything I can to live faithfully and live fully to what God has called me to do. That's how Peter responds. And I find it fascinating that, that, that John records it here because he's, re, he's writing this down in the book of John many, many years after Peter has already been executed by the emperor Domitian. Crucified upside down. And as he is writing, I, I wonder if John's having some, some flashback and maybe some like wondering in his own heart of some questions he might ask God. In fact, what he writes here will kind of reveal what I think is, is rolling through his head. If you want, you can open a Bible to John chapter 21, 20 through 25, our last, our last text in this book. It is, a, again, a biography that was written by one of Jesus' followers named John. And John doesn't put his name in there, but he calls himself the beloved disciple because of his faithfulness to Christ. And as we see this, this beloved disciple is going to be represented here in this text. And so John is writing about himself. They're walking along on this beach with Peter and Jesus, and Peter has just heard this response to follow me, though you're going to die, follow me. And we pick up in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, 
who is this that's going to betray you? And so this is, this is the, you know, the Leonardo da Vinci picture of, of John with his long hair leaning back going, huh. Unfortunately, I had to play that part once in a church play and I had to lean back like, it's, it's embarrassing. That's not what was going on in, in that period, but go back to that sermon. What you're seeing here actually is that he's indicating, this is me, I'm the guy, I'm this beloved disciple. And now Peter sees him, he says to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man? What about him? And Jesus said to him, hey, it's, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers, the disciples was, was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, they're walking along and Peter's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die a crucifixion. Uh, follow me. And he's sitting there going, okay, well, what about that guy? What's he going to, what's going to go on with his life? How's it going to work out with him? And basically Jesus looks at him and says, what business is that of yours? If I want him to stick around until I come back, he'll stick around until he, I come back. But you know what? This isn't your story. Your story's yours. His story's his. And he kind of draws this line in the sand for Peter. He's saying like, listen, I, I want you to know something. I've written this story. And I wonder, and I've written his story. And I wonder if John's sitting there thinking about his story. See, we know church history. John would go from this point on and he would become one of the, one of the 12. And as he's preaching in the midst of all this stuff, John would eventually find his way down to Ephesus where Paul had planted that church. And he would end up be there in Ephesus working and preaching. He would be arrested and tried and he'd be found guilty and they would throw him into a vat of boiling oil. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like you can't wash oil off. And it's so it burns his skin, but he survives. He's pulled out of the oil and, and the, the Roman people are so amazed that this man has survived this and he's still faithful to Jesus that they just exile him. They send him off to the island of Patmos where he ends up writing the book of Revelation that you and I can read in the end of uh, the end of the Bible. And John then is pardoned a few years later, brought back to Ephesus where he continues a ministry, disciples countless church leaders that we know of through history. And then he dies of old age, roughly around 100. During that time of his pardon and the time of, of his death, he writes this account of Jesus. Peter's already gone. Paul is already dead. He has probably received no, reminder after reminder after reminder that every single other disciple other than him has died either by the cross, by the sword, or some kind of a horrific way of death. And he is sitting here alone and he's wondering, am I going to be here until you come back? But he's reminded of something. I want you to note what he said. When Peter turns and, turns and says, what about this man? Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Notice what Jesus' response is. Hey, it's not, hey, if he stays until I come back, what's that to you? No, he says, if it is my will. Note that, underline that. This is important. You see, God is the one who writes our stories. God is the one engaged in putting your story into your life. He is the one who from eternity past saw who you were, saw the choices you would make. He is the one who has said, I want you here. God writes our stories. And when he saw Peter's story, Jesus was certain that one day Peter would indeed be crucified. He was certain that one day indeed this would occur. And it did. John already had seen it. John already knew it had occurred. And now we're sitting here and we're looking at John reflecting on his story, reflecting on the story he's written about Jesus. And he's saying, you know what? He didn't say I was going to live until he came back. He said if it was his will. 
In other words, I'm going to trust God with my story. And I want to challenge you guys this morning to begin here. I want to talk about as we unfold and finish the book of John, that I want to encourage you to understand that God has indeed written your story. He has this path that he has laid out for us. He has something for you. And praise God that we live at a time when we can receive Jesus Christ and we can have walked with him and he can guide our path along and that he intends your story to be one for his glory if you are following Jesus Christ. I am so excited that you and I get to have a life in which we live for Christ. But there are so many things that hold us back, so many things in yours and my story that can cause us to to back up. First of all, is the idea of death itself. Guys, God has hold of your death. God knows the day that you're going to die. God knows how you're going to die. It's not a surprise to him when you die. He has it understood. He knows the day. In fact, so much of our culture is obsessed with trying to stretch our lives out. Have you noticed that? I mean, how much the right kind of food, the right kind of vitamins, the right kind of surgeries, the right kind of stem cells, all this stuff. We pour money and effort and all this stuff into actually trying to prolong our lives. And we forget that Jesus himself was the one in the Sermon on the Mount who said, you can add not even an hour to your life. Huh. If we can't add anything other than what God wants for our lives, then why are we wasting our time trying to prolong our death? With what? By, to live longer so we can try to prolong our death longer? We end up putting all of our time, all of our effort in. And then some of us watch as these super great athletes, healthy, drop dead of heart attacks. And these old men smoking cigars and drinking brandy and scotch sit there until they're 125. Want a donut? You know, it's like, what? (laughs) And honestly, what we need to realize is that our lives are in the hands of God. And that means something. That means that you and I have a day in which, yes, we will meet God. But we don't have to worry and strive. I'm not saying don't be healthy. I'm not saying don't do those kind of things. What I am saying is don't obsess to try to prolong your life. Rather, let's live the life that Christ has called us to. Let's live a life in which we can risk because our lives are in God's hands. Let's live a life in which we can actually take that step of risk, take that conversation, move that thing forward, that dream for that, that ministry or that attempt to serve those people or that, that conversation that you're fearful will destroy some kind of reputation or something in your life. Let's take that risk. This is in God's hand. He has you. He cares so much about you. He, he clothes the lilies of the field. He clothes the birds. He gives them food. How much more does he not love you? Jesus says. And so this is this response that we can have, that we don't have to live a life in fear of death. And second, you don't have to live a life of comparison. Please hear me. This is something I struggle with. Every pastor struggles with comparison. I don't care if you meet one who says, no, I'm content. No, they struggle somewhere with some kind of comparison. Because when we walk into somebody else's church and they got a larger congregation than us, or they got a more vibrant, exciting spirit worship center than us, or their buildings, there's always a natural like, I wish I could have that. Now there's sometimes you meet people, you're like, I'm glad you have them. But that's different. <laughs> Most of the time we're looking at things going like, oh man, that would be so cool if I had that facility, if I had that, if I had that or, the, you know, that's natural. But we all do this. Look, Instagram, Facebook, these kind of things, they've only expanded the zone of comparison. 
Now, what we do is we dive in looking at these glossy, beautiful pictures that have been edited and changed. And, you know, if they have the ability and, and then, with, and we're just like, oh, I wish I could live like that. And then we all realize we're doing this. So then we try to be authentic on our Facebook or our Instagram feed. And then we, we show everybody how authentic we are. I'm having a bad day. And you're taking a photo of your child's mess or something. And I'm like, you have to try to show you're authentic. It's kind of the opposite of actually being authentic in my mind. But we're just trying our best to, to not get into this comparison game, to not get caught in, ooh, they got a nicer car. Ooh, they got a nice house. Oh, I wish I had that flooring. Oh, that would be such a nice job to have. That's a good paycheck. You know, whatever it is, we can find ourselves comparing. And unfortunately, sometimes we can compare ourselves to the better or to the worse. And I want to challenge you guys not to live in a life of comparison. God made you to be you. He broke the mold the day he created you because he intended you on this earth. He intended you to live the life that he's given to you and to live it fully for his name. He didn't intend for you, the person sitting next to you, to live your life. He intended you to live yours. He has said, I know the day I have you in my hand. I, have, I care for you. I'm giving you every step forward. Get out there and go live for my name, for the mission that I've sent you on. I have something for you to do. We can't get so distracted in our lives that we're not processing and pondering what has God called us to do? How do I take that risk? How do I make that next move? I don't care if you're nearing the grave because you feel like you're old or you're brand new and you're young and you're, you're energetic. God still has something for you to do here. He's intended for you to be here in this life. And to be quite honest, there are too many of the people in this world trying to tell you you're worthless. You might as well just end it now. There's an entire state that says it's okay. It's not true. God has a great intention and you may be going through difficulty at this moment. You may be going through depression. You may be going through sorrow. You may be going through suffering. You may be growing th going through all kinds of pain. And I just want you to hear me. If you're thinking about a life in which you, you, you don't think it's worth it anymore, you don't want to do this anymore, it, no. Trust me, God has you in his hand. There is far more for you ahead than right now in the, in the dip. You say, well, what about the suffering? I mean, did God intend this? He wants me here. He, he, he's making this happen. He's doing it to me. And that is the response some people have had. And I want to just kind of push back on that for a minute. Because we could read this and note what he said. If, if, if he can say, if it's my will that he remain until I come, can't Peter say, so it's your will that I'm going to die on a cross? God, are you going to do this to me? And this is the problem of suffering that exists in our world. How does God relate to suffering? What's going on? Why am I going through what I'm going through? And let me just back up a minute and tell you, God has good intention and good reasons for allowing suffering in this world. But the Bible is clear. God does not make people sin. God is not the author of sin. He will not force any human being to do an evil to another human being. And so much of the suffering that you and I feel, and much of the suffering that you and I go through that's been caused by others, God doesn't have his hand in that. Now, but he has allowed it in this world for various reasons. First and foremost, I want to start with just the reality that some, there is some suffering, my friends, that we give to ourselves. And we all said, amen. I mean, come on. How many times have you and I done something that, honestly, the repercussions are way deserved? Husbands, 
How many secrets have we kept only to have them come out later and our wives now lose trust with us, something's broken, and we just kind of like, yeah, I deserve that. And now we go through a time of suffering because we put them through a time of suffering. Look, there are things that we do to ourselves that God then will bring punishment. God will bring discipline into your life. There are some cases that God does indeed discipline us. And you may be facing suffering right now because of an event that you did, but all God is doing is trying to capture your attention to wake you up so you can turn back to him, not push you away. Notice how the book, the author of the book of Hebrews says this. He was a, um, a disciple who, said, who wrote these terms and he's talking about this idea of discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Did you read that? It's not that God disciplines you because he hates you. God allows sometimes and puts the suffering in your life because he loves you and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In fact, it'll go on. If he's not disciplining you, you might, you just, you're probably not his kid is what it's saying. A good father disciplines his children because he wants the best for his children. A good dad finds that time to give that good swat if you're in or that timeout or whatever it is that you choose as your discipline. Sometimes God gives us a swat. Sometimes he puts us in very long timeouts. I get it. But when he puts us through discipline, it's not fun. It's suffering. It's painful. But he does it from his love. And all of these sufferings, everything allowed in this world is intended for our betterment. It's intended to shape and change us. Notice what the book of Romans says. Paul is the, is the writer here. He's writing to the church in Rome and he's talking about the results of what it means when we've trusted in Jesus Christ to bear our sin and to give us life. And so it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been made right with God by trusting Jesus. We have peace with God now. He's no longer angry at us. There's no more wrath. We're at peace with God through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by this trust into this grace, this heaven, this, this eternal life with him in which we stand. And we rejoice in that hope, that eternal life of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Hold on, what's going on here? We're gonna rejoice in our sufferings? Yeah, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance is that pushing through, that pressing on. And endurance produces character. Character produces the hope that we rejoice in. God intends the suffering because he intends to shape and change us. He intends to produce character in us. And that character, guys, is otherwise called fruit. You see, baby trees don't produce fruit. Baby bears don't produce baby bears. And baby humans don't produce baby humans. Mature humans, mature bears, mature plants produce offspring. They make fruit. The point is, if you want to bear the fruit of the Spirit, you want to see God's character in your life, and it indicates to me that we are going to have to go and endure through some suffering in order to bear fruit, to become having a character, a strength in our lives. It's important that we suffer and press through because it makes us into greater people. It produces in you the character that people look at and go, how are you like that? How did you make it through that? And we go, God brought us through. God's the one who's shaping me. He's transforming me. He's empowering me. He's making me who I am. This produces then a hope for eternity. God's working in me. I can't wait to tell you about it.
Suffering, in other words, is there because God was the first one to say no pain, no gain, right? In a very real sense, God has intended many cases of suffering and he's allowed other people to harm each other and these things partially, and I don't have all the answers to this, but partially because he intends to shape each one of us. My mom died eight years ago. I would have never asked for that. Never in never hoped for it. She was an amazing reader. I wanted her to read to my kids. I wanted her to be invested in my family. I wanted this relationship and it didn't happen. She's gone. I'm thinking, God, what in the world are you doing? Why do I have to suffer through the loss of my mom? Why do I have to suffer through the missing element in my family? And now after eight years, I can look back and I can tell you there are things that have happened within me, within my family, within my sisters, within my dad that would not have occurred and our character would not have been exposed and shaped if she had been here. And you're like, is that even worth it? You know, my mom's a Christian. I look forward to the day I get to see her again. In that mind, I believe it is worth it. And while it's horrible and awful to go through and I don't like it and I don't enjoy it, I see its purpose and I see its power. I see the shaping that it does in our lives. And I want to encourage you, if you're in the midst of suffering this morning, if you're challenged with chronic pain, if you're going through a, just a life in which nothing lined up and you're suffering, I want to encourage you to keep going. God isn't done. He isn't done lifting you. He isn't done strengthening you. He isn't done comforting you. He isn't done leading you through this path. In fact, he has a purpose for it to shape and change you. If you give up now, you give up on the very thing God is doing in you. And the second big thing that you need to do when you're in the middle of suffering is don't compare your suffering to another person's suffering, please. To compare your suffering to another person's suffering is a suffering in itself that you don't need. On one hand, if you compare yourself to somebody who's suffering worse than there, you, will, you then you will minimize your suffering and not be, able to hand, not be able to actually deal with the suffering you're in and you'll lose out on the benefits. On the flip side, if you think your suffering is so much greater than someone else's, you'll overemphasize your suffering and cease to be compassionate for others and lose out on character God intends for you. Don't play the game of comparison. Even in suffering, don't do it. Because God intends not only your story for you, he intends the sufferings and the shapings for you because he knows who you need to become. In some ways, he's tailor-made the things that we go through to develop who we are if we will simply go with him and follow him. If we will follow his lead through the midst of our suffering, through our joys and all the pieces, you'll begin to see as it comes through. John and Peter had to do that in their lives. And they did it as they watched Jesus die and raise and they had a hope in the distance. Now, while I don't want you comparing your stories and while I don't want you comparing your sufferings, here's what we should do. We need to share and tell about what God has done in our lives. One of the reasons share is part of our mission statement is because it's so essential to what Christian life is about. God has called us to share what God is doing in our lives. He's called us to tell about what God has done. Now, where do I get that from? I get it from right here. Notice what, what John is doing. He says in verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Right there in verse 24, he's saying that guy, that beloved disciple who's leaning uh, back on Jesus' uh, chest, that's John. And John is, going, is the one who's writing this story. He's saying, I'm the guy who saw this. Why do we need to know this? Because John's saying, look, I'm the faithful I'm the faithful witness. I want you to be like me. What's a witness? Well, a witness, technically in our term, and even theirs, was someone who sat on a stand and told what they saw. 
to a legal court, to a group of people. And that's what God is saying. We need to be people who tell what we saw, tell what happened, tell what God did in our lives. And that's what John does. Page after page, we've read John telling us what Jesus has done in his life. He was there when John the Baptist was there. And he's like, I was there, I saw it. John was there when Jesus did these miracles. He's like, I was there, I saw it. When Jesus was crucified, when he was in the upstairs room, he said, I heard it. This is what I heard. This is what I saw walking along. This is what I saw. I was at the cross. He could faithfully witness to it. I was in the tomb. He could faithfully witness to it. He says, I saw him all three times that he came and revealed himself to us. I can faithfully witness to it. And what I want to tell you guys is John is a model. John is saying when God did something in his life, he was ready to tell people what had happened and what God was doing. And if we accept what John is telling us, if we accept his testimony, what Jesus Christ did for you and for me, it turns us into witnesses. Those who then go into this world and proclaim to other people what God is doing in our lives. And I want to invite you to consider that maybe God's doing things in your life so that you can share it with other people so they can encourage and change them. That your life is there to help you express what God is doing in this world. So let me, let me put it this way. Everybody in this room, whether you're the most hardened, you know, strong-willed Christian who's just been there all your life, you're like, you've been in every battle, you're ready to go, or you're a strong, hardened atheist, God is doing something in your life. And that sounds weird, but the honest truth is if God exists and he is active in this world, he leaves nobody alone, no matter what you believe. He is engaged in your life. And in some cases, he's shown up in your suffering and you didn't even see him. He lifted you up. He helped you out. He brought that friend at that exact moment. He allowed somebody else to come into your life because you needed that. Or it was just an inner strength that he allowed you to have. But you know, it took somebody else to come and show you that. Or maybe you've gone long enough and you just don't have that. You're wondering, where is that strength? I thought I had it. I don't have it anymore. What's going on? Maybe it's your success and God's been blessing you and you have no reason to understand why you have the blessings you have. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Some of us have jobs we shouldn't have. Isn't that true? Thank you for being honest. Because I'll tell you what, if it had been up to some of our efforts and some of our work and other things, we wouldn't be doing the jobs we do. It's been a blessing and a grace we wound up where we are. It's been God's work to get us to where we are. And so we realize when we give back to God in our giving or we open our food at the table and we thank him with our family, we're just simply saying, God, I didn't deserve this. It's not my own making that this happened. You're that good and gracious to me. Thank you. And when we understand that, it's God using these very things to show up and tell us that he's working. Sometimes he's just convicting you of sin. You may be here, you're at church because, man, you feel guilty. You've done some awful things in the last few months, the last couple of years, and God's just on you, won't let you up, won't let it go. And the guilt is just so in you. You're like, okay, I've tried these things. I'm just going to go to church. I guess they deal with this. If you walked in looking for a confession booth or something to let it go, you don't have to do that. You can talk directly to God. He gave you a priest. His name is Jesus. He's right here, right today. And he's brought that conviction so that you can talk to him. And you can confess your sin right there and receive what he did on, and receive what he did on the cross and be forgiven. And do you know why I know these things happen? Because I've seen it in life after life after life of people I've talked to. Men and women who've come into this church overwhelmed and burdened by the evils that they've committed in their lives. 
feeling like they had nowhere to turn and God lifted them and transformed them and uses them today. People who have walked into this place rich as all get out only to meet Jesus for them to humble themselves and suddenly be willing to give like they've never given and use what they have for the glory of God. Other people who have walked in here and, and they would simply are going through suffering only to find the comfort of God brought about by someone in the room or the spirit of God himself. And I just want to encourage you that God is doing something. He is acting in you. The, the danger is if you are unwilling to see it. If you're blind to God's work, you see, why are the Pharisees constantly talked about in the book of John? It's because they're the image of those people who are so sure of themselves, they miss what God is doing in their life. So positive, so sure they got it figured out, so sure they're the masters of their own destinies that they have ignored God. And in that act, they wind up being completely blind. This is never more shown off than when John talks in John chapter nine about Jesus' miracle. He comes up to this guy born blind, heals him. He sees now and Jesus moves on. And we follow the blind guy as he gets taken in by all the Pharisees, sat down in a trial. And this guy just starts telling him what Jesus did. And it winds up to where the Pharisees are so angry, they start yelling at him. And they reviled him, verse 28 said, saying, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God's spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now, the man who was born blind and now can see, he says, Boy, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. In other words, who's the blind one here? And what's amazing is that it's a picture John is trying to remind us. John is saying, look, when you think you've got it down, when you think you've got to figure it out, you may be so blind you miss exactly what God is doing in your life. I would hope that we all would be humble enough to back up from our, our accomplishments, our convictions, our sufferings, and say, you know what? Maybe God is trying to get my attention. Maybe this isn't all about me. Maybe God is up to something and he wants me to see him so that I have something to share. And that's the second thing I want to warn you guys about. Some of you in this room, you grew up in a home that followed Jesus. You grew up where Jesus was always in your life. He's like the sun. You don't know when he rose, but he's been shining in your life. And to be honest, some of you, when it comes to this time of telling what Jesus did in your life, you hear, oh, I don't, I hear people say, I don't have a testimony. And they're thinking, oh, I didn't go through drugs and sex and rock and roll and mess ups and this stuff and then come to Jesus. Nah, everything's amazing. I didn't kill anybody and now Jesus saved me. You don't have that kind of story for a life. So you're like, I don't have a testimony. I don't know about you, but I'm really concerned about that conversation. Because I'm raising four kids in the church. And you know what? Last time I checked, I wasn't raising them not to have a testimony. And I think most people in here who are raising your ch children in the church, you're not raising them not to have a testimony. Am I right? That's why I didn't say, go tell how you came to Jesus. I said, tell what God has been doing in your life. See, those of you who have the beauty of being raised in the church and knowing Jesus all of your life, God has done more things in your life than he did in mine. No matter how dramatic my conversion was. No matter how dramatic someone else's conversion was. Stop comparing. Because God intended your story and he did things in your life that are powerful and effective. That if you'll simply look back, you'll realize what he did and what he was doing. I love one simple story my wife tells all the time at Christmas and because it's impactful. And, and as, as her husband, I get to see the effects even if she didn't realize them. 
See, she'll tell about a time where her and her brother and her mom and her dad sat down and they, were, they had bought a box of Bibles that they were sending to Russia. And you get to realize, this is the 80s. Who's Russia in the 80s? They're the bad guys. There's no church, there's nothing. And they were going to take these Bibles, they prayed over and they were going to be taken into, into Russia where they were hoping the churches would be born. That moment for my wife, she called it was holy. She could sense God's presence. He was working in that moment to open her heart to several things. One, it taught her not to be a prejudiced person. How can you be prejudiced when you're sending the Bible into a nation that you would consider your nation's enemy? Two, it taught her generosity. She brings it up every Christmas because she's like, we need to do this. And I'm like, Nah, we need more stuff. Because I grew up in a home, we never did anything like that. You just got more stuff. And to be honest, it birthed in her a generosity and a love and a care that was surrounded around Jesus. God worked in that moment. I'm jealous of that event because that stuff didn't happen in my home. That's a story that's powerful. That's a story of God working in a home, working among a family. And when we hear those stories, they motivate, do they not? God can work in your family. God can work in all families. God is out to redeem families and transform things. And when they're transformed, do great things in them. And so I want you guys never to tell yourself, I don't have a testimony. You do. And don't think that telling your story is bragging. It's not. In fact, Jesus said it this way in his Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men so that you may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let it out. Let people see what God is doing. It's not bragging. What you're doing is giving glory to God. Let other people see it. When they hear it and they see it, it changes you. It enables you to say, wow, God is still working today. Whoa, God does answer prayer. Whoa, that's what God can do? I, I didn't, I thought he was just upstairs watching. No, he's active, involved. But if we hide our stories and we keep back what God is doing, it does not invest into one another to give us strength in the midst of our suffering, to give us vision in the middle of our success. It doesn't help us. And I want to encourage you guys to tell your stories of what God is doing in your life to each other. Tell your stories of what God is doing in your life to other people. Share these things and share truthfully what God has done for you. Don't hold, don't turn, when you're talking about Jesus, don't turn him into Democrat Jesus or Republican Jesus. That's not the point. Let Jesus be Jesus. I'll tell you what, I, if you've ever sat down, I did it one time, I was alone up, uh, up on a spiritual retreat and I, I just sat down, I read out loud the entire book of John. It took me a couple hours, but I just read it out loud. I'll tell you what, Jesus says some of the nuttiest stuff you've ever read. I, I'm telling you, I am the bread of life. And you're trying, I'm trying to, you know me, I like to read dramatically. And I'm like, that sounds arrogant. Oh, that sounds, that's uncomfortable. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall, I'm just like, eh, huh? And we, we don't realize what Jesus is saying but if he wasn't true, if he truly wasn't the resurrected Lord, man, this guy was arrogant. But he was the resurrected Lord and all he was speaking was the truth. And John writes it down, no matter how offensive that could have seemed or how crazy that could have sounded. He goes, this is Jesus. You just got to deal with Jesus. Too many of us won't let Jesus defend himself. We're like all hedging around like, oh, the Bible. No, just open the cage, let Jesus out. He's a great, great fighter. He knows what he's doing. And so we don't need to be afraid that Jesus has done something in your life. Our stories are messy. They get cleaned up in eternity. Share what God is doing now. 
allow what his truth is in the scripture to be let out. Share what he has done here. This is what John is doing. He says, I'm telling you guys these things. My testimony is true. So don't shade it. Don't change it. Just be honest. And finally, share what builds trust in God. Share what builds trust in God to those people that you're sharing with. You're going to share this story to somebody. John shared it with us. John shared it with a whole bunch of people. He wrote it originally for, for a group of probably Jewish Christians who are now being kicked out of synagogues. And he says in verse 25, now, there's so many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, there's a lot more he could have told us. Imagine what stories he didn't include. He chose the ones he chose because he had a purpose. That purpose is found back one page on page on, on chapter 20. He says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing you may have life in his name. His intention was to share these things that would build trust in Jesus Christ. He didn't put it all in there and you're not going to share all of your story all the time. You need to share those parts of the story that are important and share those parts of the story that are helpful to lead people forward. But that means you got to know your audience. Guys, how dare we turn people into projects? When we invite you to get to know your neighbors, we do it because really we should know our neighbors. We as Christians are called to love others as Christ has loved us. And it at least needs to begin with our next door neighbors. It needs to at least begin with those surrounding us and our family and our friends and our, and our, and our coworkers. And as we love these people, we can't, they won't, they don't care what we know until they know that we care. Tell them all you want about your story. Your story means nothing until they know that you care about them. And one day you're going to hear as you're praying for them, as you're getting to know them, as you're caring about them, there are going to be stories, and I guarantee you this is going to occur, where your story and their story is going to be so weirdly similar that they are going to answer a problem. Whether that's they're going through a suffering event that you've already gone through and God lifted you through it. Whether it's something with their children or their spouse. And it's fascinating. As you tell your story, you reveal that God has worked in your life in that place and he can work in theirs. See, it's not just about your conversion. God's a living God today, working in our lives. And when we share those things, they become powerful tools to lead to the word of God so you can lead them to know who Jesus is. The Jesus who dwells in my heart and in yours. The Jesus who leads us through this world. So I want to encourage you guys. God may be calling you to share your story with somebody today. He may be calling you to share this story and you've been waiting on it and you're not ready, but it's time. What do we have to fear? He knows the numbers of our days. He knows how we're going to end. And he's called us to a great commitment. He's put you here on purpose. He has an intention for you. And this story is, can only be lived by you. Let's not waste it away. And let's have great testimonies as John did. Amen? Let's go from here and live in the heart of what John called that we would be witnesses of Jesus Christ to tell what he has done in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, I lift up those in this room right now who are ready to just go out there and um, tell their story, to let people know what you're doing. And I ask that you would give us boldness. You'd give us uh, a confidence as we get into um, situations and conversations so that we would be ready to have cared and poured into people 
and share our stories about what you've done. God, you've done so much in our lives. For those of us who may be wondering, I don't know what you've done, God. I'm really struggling here. Help us to see those things. Open our hearts up and reveal the small and the big of what you've done for us. And then would you just allow our stories to align with someone else so that we may just simply care and bless them. And from there, God, would you begin to generate just salvations and transformations of people who need you so that you would be more and more well-known. We ask that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.